Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It is no secret that there are different standards for black families than for white families in the United States. Our guest this week, Dr. Esau McCauley, has a new memoir titled How Far to the Promised Land that explores these differences and the effects they have on our nation. Esau is an associate professor of the New Testament, the author of several books, and a contributing columnist for the New York Times. How Far to the Promised Land is now available. This is the myth of black male exceptionalism. And I believe that it is fundamentally marring the ways that we perceive black boys and their futures moving forward. Even in the midst of uncertainty, kind of the mission of the church and the mission of institutions goes forward as wisely and carefully as possible. The court has affirmed and reaffirmed this view that colleges could use race not as a determinative factor for admission, but as one of the factors among many in deciding who to admit from a, quali- from a qualified, already qualified pool of applicants. Today, the court once again walked away from decades of precedent. The myth of the welfare queen was imagined over 40 years ago. These were women supposedly having babies just to get rich off of welfare benefits. This gained traction in the early 90s during so-called welfare reform, and it wasn't by accident. Hello, I'm Esau McCauley, and I'm sorry, not sorry, that I reject black exceptionalism as the only means of racial progress. Esau, I want to get into how far to the promised land. And I think the best way to do that is to ask you to tell our listeners a bit about who you are and what you do. And we'll go from there. Okay. My name is Esau McCauley. I am an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and I'm a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and the author of the new book, How Far to the Promised Land, When Black Family Stored Hope and Survival in the American South. I'm married with four kids. That's probably important, too. And my wife is the real star of the family. She's a pediatrician and Navy reservist. So that's the McCauley's. Unbelievable. That is incredible. She must be an incredible, incredible woman. The introduction to the book, you talk in part about the process of applying to college as kind of like performative, saying in your essay, not what you wanted to say, but you call like the story America requires from its Black survivors. I think that's important. I think that might be a good place to start to get into the premise of your memoir. Tell us about this required story 
and what the effects of that requirement are. I think it's probably best to, to start with my father. My father died in a single car accident in 2017. He was a truck driver. He passed away in California. And he had been in and out of our lives for most of my childhood. And his kind of initial departure from my family uh, sent me and my three siblings and my mom hurtling down the economic ladder towards poverty. I'm Bradley Chatterton. I'm Ashley Chatterton. And we're children of a drug addict alcoholic father. Growing up, it was just me, my brother, and my mom. Dad was just in and out. He was doing his thing. Being a child of an addicted parent is normal to us. That is our life. I mean, that's how we grew up. It was hard without my dad being there because it was just mom and with her being busy, it was kind of as if we were forced to grow up a little bit faster than other kids. And when he passed away, my family asked me to do the eulogy for him. And that was difficult because I didn't know him very well. And the parts of his story that I did know, the time when he was with us, he was often violent and abusive and he dealt with issues of drugs and alcohol. One of the things that you have to do when you are doing a eulogy, if you're going to at least tell the truth, you have to tell the whole of someone's story, the good and the bad. And what I wanted to do was not lie or create this nostalgic picture of my father, but articulate the truth about who he was, the things that he did wrong, the things that he did to our family, and the ways in which in the latter parts of his life, he apologized and tried to make amends. Whenever you're doing eulogy, people who probably don't do eulogies don't know how this works. If you sit down with the family members, and you ask them about their story. And in the context of doing that eulogy and learning my father's story, it made me process my own story in a way that I began to tell the story. And what I really wanted to do is to get away from this idea that the only story that mattered in my community was my story, that I began in poverty, that I overcame this difficult circumstance and I made it to this place called the promised land. But in reality, the lives of the people around me, even the people who didn't make it to college and PhDs and becoming a New York Times colonist, their stories matter. And so in the process of learning to retell my father's story, I learned to tell a better story about my own upbringing, kind of reject this idea that the only stories that matter were the exceptional stories. Because one of the things, for example, when I was learning about his story, I learned about my grandmother, who was a tenant farmer, and she was illiterate. And despite the fact that she was an illiterate tenant farmer, it's my great-grandmother, in like the 1920s, she worked hard enough to save up enough money to buy her own plot of land during Jim Crow in Alabama. And so what I really wanted to do in this book was to show all the ways which the stories that we ignore matter in the United States, not just the ones that we deem successful because of some kind of material financial success. And how does it differ? How was your father's real story, the digging that you did to create an accurate eulogy, how is that different than the required story? In the required story, my father was simply a villain, someone who I had to escape to get out of poverty to make it into the middle class or whatever we consider success. That's the standard narrative, that, that my father is simply the background story to my trip to college out of an all-Black inner city poor, um, particularly tricky neighborhood, into this other place. And what I found doing the eulogy is that my father's own addiction and his own struggles were a result of the trauma that he experienced as a child. One of the things that happened that I didn't know about until he passed away was there was a fire before he was born, in which two of his siblings were burned alive 
in this fire. Two toddlers were burned alive. My father was born a few years after that. And his father was so traumatized by that incident of losing two of his children in the fire that he always judged my dad on the basis of the children that he lost. One of the last things that his father says to him before his father passes away is that you aren't any good and you're only going to be paying to the people around you. And so my father is marked by this sense of being unable to live up to the standards of his own dad and this idea that he was, it was predicted that he was going to be a failure. And so all of the kind of inability to settle or focus or his tendency to run when things got difficult or his periodic bouts with depression and addiction, I think comes from having a father who treated him poorly. Now, that doesn't necessarily change what he did to us, my experience, but it actually puts it in context. And it shows how much who we are is a product of the things that we experience. And so his attempt, I think, his attempt to overcome the things that he experienced in the places where he grew up, he was in this school and he was good in basketball, for example. And so they just passed him along in sports and they didn't really teach him how to do his schoolwork. As so we got towards the end of his years in high school and he wasn't prepared to graduate and make any progress because they only saw him as an athlete. And so when you begin to learn these stories about who he was and the way the racism and these things impacted his life, I think that his story is instructive about America too. And that's the real question, right? So when we say, I grew up in poverty, and my father left me and there was addiction and there was an abuse and I made it to this place. The story kind of can be, yes, America puts you through it. It's kind of like the Hunger Games. We put you through it. But if you survive and you win, you get the prize. And what I want to say is but that way of telling the story leaves the system in place. It leaves this idea that we can put people through it as long as enough of us survive. And what I wanted to show is what about the people who are broken by the system? Do their stories matter as well? It's not just my father, but other characters who we encounter in the narrative, who we see them come up against the ways in which America puts these boundaries in front of Black aspiration and Black success. The Supreme Court affirmed a lower court order which said two majority Black districts or something quite close to it, direct quote. What the lawmakers are considering is one majority Black seat and something around 40% Black in another district. Hmm. Not something quite close to it. They argue this is an opportunity for, for Black voters to represent the representative of their choice. You know, I think unsaid is maybe or not whether it's a good chance or reasonable chance, and that's what advocates are going to be fighting over. Hmm. Um, they're absolutely going to challenge this map. They say this is a, another Voting Rights Act violation, uh, and it does not comply with the court order. For example, my grandfather, who's still living, he grew up as a tenant farmer. He started picking cotton in 1941 at four years old. And he said he got um, three meals, I think a pair of overalls and two books a year. That was his payment as a child. But because he was working in the fields, he was often behind in school because they take them out of school to go work in the fields. It almost sounds like slavery in the 1940s. And for that reason, he gets behind in school and he ends up being 16 or 17 years old his freshman year in high school. And that's one of the reasons why he ends up dropping out of school because he's older. And his attempt to overcome those kinds of acts of discrimination, to make something for himself, he actually does eventually starts his own small business, are again instructive to the kinds of things that African-Americans, my ancestors, my grandparents, and the people behind us, the kinds of things we experienced on our way trying to make something of ourselves in this country.
interesting because as I'm listening to you, I am reflective of my own growth as far as generational trauma goes. And it's not that you can overcome it because my mom, she came from an abusive family and she was on food stamps and my acting career basically got us out. I think about how it wasn't until a certain point in my life that I was able to connect the dots to really understand how deep the blood goes. And listen, poverty is trauma alone. So then you add everything else on it. We get to know your father a little bit in the chapter you titled The Making of a Villain. And what we find is perhaps different than what we expect. I'm always really interested in the mythologies that I have told myself about certain people and this creating of villains, I think is innately in us in a way. Even the little things like the way we enjoy sports, right? There's like the good guy and the bad guy and like all the things. So tell us more about who your dad was when he met your mother. Yeah. So in the book, you meet my father twice. First time you meet him is almost when he comes into my mind and my imagination. And that is as a child, and I'm seven years old, and I talk about this particular image that, that sticks into my head, is that I'm sleeping in my, I had a transformer sleeping bag. I remember because he glue in the dark. I had a glow in the dark transformer sleeping bag that I got for Christmas for my birthday. I can't remember. And I was sleeping it at night. And one day I heard this banging in the room next to me. And it's my father because he punched through a wall and I hear him cursing at my mom. And my mom has called the police because he's turned violent again. And I had this moment where I was hiding in the cupboard. But because I hear my mom screaming, I come out and I go out and we have this moment where we lock eyes and he walks past me. And so the first time I meet him, the audience meets him, is as this villainous character who is addicted to drugs and who's, and who's violent. But my mother met him in the late 70s and she meets him right after the father who had spoken those harsh words to him, had died. And for her, he was this charming, grieving teenage boy with a small kind of the Afro, that almost like the Denzel Washington, like perfect Afro back in the day. And he was kind and he was funny and they fell in love. There's a picture that she shows me kind of hangs up in the back corner of the um, house in which we live in the utility closet of them in those traditional 70s pastels that you see from the Black Quotation films. And they're just this untroubled, happy teenage couple. And those two pictures of people, the person who becomes the addict, but also the grieving young boy who's still trying to prove his father wrong, it's like these two men are fighting within the same person. Because my father wasn't always abusive every moment of our life. One of the things about trauma, right? We love the people who hurt us. We can't help but love the people who hurt us because it's not just them that we love, like our mom or our dad. It's the idea of what a mom or dad might be, right? It's what we see on the television shows and the movies where the dad always has the great advice. And when you scrape your knee, he runs to the side of you and he picks you up and he tells you everything's going to be okay. And my dad was capable of doing that in moments. But the tricky part is you never know which person is going to come home. The dad who loved everyone who was the life of the party or the dad who came home with that glazed over look in his eyes where you knew the whole rest of the day was going to be danger. And so what the hard part in the book is to introduce both those characters, because people who hear about abuse and trauma have a hard time understanding the complex emotions that we feel, both the love and the terror. There are many different reasons why someone might be an abuser. 
a lot of the times going back to their family structure. If there was domestic violence in the home, if there was child abuse in the home, that is how they see feelings, anger being expressed through physical violence, through emotional violence, through language, through um, psychological abuse. It's how they have power and control over someone. In a way, do you feel like that is also a required story that we tell ourselves about the love of parents? I think it's hard not to dream of a different life than the one that you experience. So when I'm sitting there and I'm in that room and I'm praying that the police come and, and keep me and my mom safe, obviously, I'm wishing for a different future for myself. But the only future that I know how to dream for is one in which there's a mom and a dad who love each other and like the children. One of the things that happened to me in particular is that even as a child, this is one of the things that had a tremendous impact on how I viewed the rest of my life. I had this idea, and this is this question that popped up to me even during those times that I recounted in the book. What would it be like if there was a son who had a father who loved him? I was really curious about it. I remember having this thing very clearly. And I said, you know what I want to do when I grew up? It wasn't I wanted to be an NFL player or a movie star or anything like that. I said, I just want to be a dad who loves his kid. And I wondered what that love might do for that kid because I knew what the absence of what that love did for me. And it simplified my dream. And even before puberty happened, before I even knew about girls and boys, I said, I wonder what it would be like if the Dad loved them all. If he always turned to her with affection instead of violence. My two goals growing up were only ever to be a husband and a father because I just wanted to see, I really wanted to see almost like a science experiment, what would their life look like? And so one of the reasons that I wrote How Far to the Promised Land was because I felt like I needed to write an ending to these stories and find some hope in them with the aspiration that I might be able to have a better ending for my children. And so that reality that we're marked by trauma and it shapes our aspirations, I think is true of all people who at least go through difficult circumstances. You mentioned the abuse, and there's a moment when you're praying to grow so that you can defend your family. And I think that leads to a larger conversation on faith that runs through the book and through your life. You talk about the presence or absence of God in particular, one who allows the suffering of children as being more urgent in Black context. Why is that? One of the things that anyone who knows a little bit about what's happened to Black people in America is that we understand from slavery through to Jim Crow, through to things like the 1950s and 1960s, you think of the Emmett Till story, think of the old little girls in Birmingham who were murdered, and even the, the endless numbers of children we've seen in our day. And it feels like sometimes Black children suffer the most at the hands of society and culture. And the other thing that is also true is that Black communities are often deeply religious, that Christianity is very prominent in the Black community. And so one of the questions that we ask that might be raised in this context, and one of the questions that I was talking about when I'm sitting in that room and I'm praying, the question is, well, why doesn't God answer the prayer? Why doesn't God stop the abuse from happening? And that's a legitimate question. It's a question that many people raise. What kind of God allows the suffering of so many innocent people, not just Black people in America, but children all over the world? And one of the things that I try to articulate in the book is that's an easy question to ask from the outside. In other words, we can take a look at 
a scene or an event that's going on in the lives of someone and say, look at how God could not exist. And what I want to say is one of the interesting things that you see in the Black narrative in America and in my own narrative in particular, when I was actually in the midst of that suffering, who was there to help? And the person who was a help and a support for me during those difficult times was God. And so what I was trying to articulate there was maybe the suffering person gets a vote on how his or her suffering is interpreted. And if we're going to listen to the testimony of the Black people who suffered, the answer is it's been God who helped us through. Once again, you look at the civil rights movement, people like Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers and Fannie Lou Hamer and many of the activists who led to the expansion of rights, people of faith. One of the really interesting stories is if you go back to the Emancipation Proclamation and when the slaves are freed, if you listen to some of the sermons that Black preachers were giving in the 1860s, it's almost funny to read them if we go back because they say explicitly, it wasn't Abraham Lincoln who freed the slaves, it was God. And so that's how they articulate their own freedom. Even Frederick Douglass in his own kind of recounting of the liberation of the slaves, he goes at Abraham Lincoln for being vacillating very often. And he talks it up to providence in the long kind of arc of justice that, that God was overseeing. And so that's what I was trying to get at. This idea that sometimes for people who are suffering, our suffering has earned for us the right to interpret its meaning. You remember when Obama is singing Amazing Grace? And I can't even remember which one of the endless amounts of tragedies it was. But there was this idea that in the midst of that difficult circumstance, he was tapping into this deep well of a Black faith that has carried us through innumerable traumas. I want to go back now to the college application because the required Black story you write about is one of exceptionalism. We accept the story of the Black person who has survived challenges and quote unquote overcame them. And what this means then is that the story we accept of Black people is one of exceptionalism. Let's unpack that a little bit more. I know you spoke about it in the beginning. Can you explain to us what that means for us as a nation and especially for Black people? Yeah, so I was speaking about when I got ready to go to college and it's interesting, we just had the Supreme Court case. We begin tonight with the Supreme Court striking down affirmative action and reshaping college admissions. In a six to three decision, the justices ruled that Harvard University and the University of North Carolina violated the Constitution by considering race when deciding whether to admit someone to their school. A landmark case overturning nearly 50 years of precedent. The latest example of the conservative majority redefining American law including abortion rights and guns. You have to write these essays, and these essays are meant to get you into college. And I was the first generation of my family to go to college. So I'm asking the counselor, what do I have to do to get into this school? And the counselor told me, tell them the sob story. Give them the opportunity to feel like they plucked the branch from the burning fires of poverty, and they have a chance to save you. And so the idea is, you tell this story. I grew up this way. I encountered these things. I overcame them. You reward me with all of the stuff. Like I've won the Hunger Games. You reward me. And what the problem with that story is, and I remember when I go to college, maybe this is common knowledge for everyone else. I go to college and I thought that everybody in college went through the exact same thing. They all went through this kind of gauntlet of suffering and injustice and poverty to make it. And I found that there were actually a lot of rich people in college who were C students in high school whose parents could just pay for their tuition. And so they got to college just because in college for them 
was just four years to meander around before they had to enter into the real world and mom or dad's business or whatever. And I said, hold on. Why is it that ordinary people from other communities get to succeed, but only exceptional Black people get to succeed? And I said, for me, justice is ordinary Black people flourishing. And one of the things that happens is the stakes are so high in the Black community. If you make one mistake, it seems like it could send you hurtling down these, once again, into deeper and deeper poverty. It's what I was trying to get at is that story in which we say it is hard, it is unfair, but some people win. That doesn't challenge the system. This is the tricky part of writing a memoir. The story that people wanted me to tell, I felt this pressure of, is that I'm amazing. But the truth is, there are tons of people who are just like me, just as talented, just as smart in my community, but circumstances often got in the way that kept them from flourishing. For example, there's a story in which I have a friend of mine who's an athlete, and they have this rule that you have to pass a certain amount of classes in order to be eligible to play sports. They changed the rules between his junior and senior year making it more difficult. And he, because of this, he ends up quitting school. He has a lot of talent, a lot of potential. He ends up quitting school. This guy who quit school because they changed this rule, he eventually finds himself murdered in a robbery gone wrong. And his whole life hinged on this small decision by the school board to change the eligibility requirements. Me, I was blessed enough to be able to remain eligible long enough to fall in love with school and I was able to go to college. So am I better than that person? Or did that person have a different set of circumstances? My cousin, who, who I talk about in the book, I end up in a poor neighborhood, but it's a poor neighborhood that's not completely broke. Some of my cousins go into um, government-subsidized housing, which is an even more dangerous neighborhood where there's much more drugs, much more violence. And because they're exposed to those drugs and violence, they end up more deeply involved in those activities than I do. Now, what's the difference in those two scenarios? My mom had maybe, my mom made 20, I think $22,000 a year annually raising the five of us, and maybe they made $18,000 a year. So that's $4,000. The difference between barely being able to be in those houses that we were in versus being into government houses that were much more dangerous. Am I better than the government housing people? Would my mom have to have $4,000 more? And so what I really wanted people to do is to see the ways in which what we consider insignificant things have a tremendous impact on the future of Black and brown people in America. And there are other stories that we, and by we, I mean white people, there are other stories about Black people, though, that just aren't there, that don't exist. You were raised primarily by your single mother during a time of Reagan pushing the myth of the welfare queen. What effect do those myths have on Black communities? It's funny because we now are in this moment where like anti-woke culture and racial stereotypes and racism the quiet part is now being said out loud on social media. But anybody who was listening to talk radio in the 80s recognized this is exactly the same stuff. What we were told in the 80s was that these women, these single moms with these large families are an economic drain on society. Their children are only ever going to be addicts and criminals and there's no future. And that any financial assistance that we receive is actually promoting laziness. And one of the things that I said is that I don't know if anyone has ever actually been broke and what it's actually like to not know where your next meal is going to come from. My mother, she had a full-time job. She was working at Chrysler and she was working in a factory during one of the um, economic downturns in the um, automobile market. There's a buyout. She has this plan to use the money they give her the buyout to go to college to create this better future for herself. But she gets a brain tumor. She gets a brain tumor. 
And because of the aftermath of that surgery, she's unable to work a full-time job. And we end up on government support. But no one cares about the nuances of that story. They hear government support and they assume that she's lazy and they assume that we're a bunch of criminals. Under the laws now in place, all mothers who have children under age six are exempt from participating in work activities that, as several demonstration projects have shown, can help Aid for Dependent Children, AFDC, recipients become more self-reliant. Fewer than one-fifth of all recipients now participate in work activities. We must lift this counterproductive exemption and thereby get early help to these women and their children before they become chronically dependent on welfare. For my mom, she turned that almost into a question of our character. And she said to us, are the things that the people say about you on television or on the other side of town, my hometown is Redline, it's a black part and it's a white part. Things the people say about you, are they true or are they false? And so for us, the classroom became this place where we were able to prove our worth as people. And so three of us go to college, my sister, who should probably be writing the book. My older sister is the real famous Macaulay. She becomes a pediatric cardiac intensivist. She does pre and post operative care on children with heart issues. So she's running one of the pediatric heart places in Houston. My other sister is a chef. My other brother, I think he does some kind of day trading. I forget what he does. But the idea is that all four of us in our own way made our way out of these contexts, despite what people said about us. Part of it was my mom. There is a hero in this story. It is my mother. The book is dedicated to my mother. And I will reject my exceptionalism, but I will say that she was an exceptional mom because she was one of the people who said, your circumstances don't define you. And that you have the opportunity. She made school a test of our words. One of the things that she would do, she was on the school board, one of the first Black women to any elected office in our town, despite the fact that she had a disability, despite the fact that she was a single mom, despite the fact that she was on government assistance making $22,000 a year, she ran for school board and won. And so she would come back, she would say, those white people across town say that y'all can't learn. Is that true? And so she, she turned college, she turned high school into a question about Black dignity. And she said, you are responsible and you are responsible for who you become. And when you become what you're going to become, don't forget where you came from. And part of how part of the promised land is me saying, I may be in this place, but you cannot forget that neighborhood. And you have to see those characters. Now, one of the other things that I was trying to get at in the book is that like some of this is random, right? There's this scene where there's a drive by that happens when I'm 15, 16 years old. And someone comes to my house, they shoot up the entire place. There are bullets flying everywhere. And right after the police come and they go, I'm sitting on my bed right where I was when the bullets were flying. And there was a bullet hole like three inches to the right of where I'd been sitting. And had I moved over just a little bit more, it's possible that I would have died. Now, had I died at 16, they might have said, this is just another young kid who was shot by a drive-by because he must have been a bad person. And that's the reason why I say it's hard to simply look at the particular attributes of an individual and say, this is why they succeeded. Because some of the reasons that we live or we die in the communities that we come from is providence. And so what we need then, I want to suggest, is not more determined Black people. We need a better America that makes, it, makes that kind of determination less necessary. How do we get there? Right. Like, how do we either dismantle and reconceive of these systems or repair them to make 
the things many white families take for granted accessible to black families? Like, where do we start? We have to start by telling a better story. With more nuance, an honest story. So one of the things that happens in America is that there's kind of a story of American greatness where we begin as this country, we, we have these beliefs about equality and justice. And, and so we start this republic and now we're this, the greatest nation on earth. And, and some of those things are true, that there are these ideals that existed. But America was also misogynistic throughout, has been misogynistic throughout most of its history. It oppressed women. It oppressed minorities. It treated every foreigner that has ever come as the exotic other, and it exploited them economically and financially. And so until we actually embrace the long-term implications of our sins and say, these are the things that we actually did to Black people. In other words, we had slavery. After slavery, we had Jim Crow. After Jim Crow, we had the Civil Rights Movement and the resistance to the Civil Rights Movement and the war on drugs. After the war on drugs, we had kind of Reaganomics, and these things go on and on and on and on. And as long as we tell the story in which we are absolved of these things, then we can't begin to imagine a different future. If we begin to tell the story in which we articulate what actually happened in this country, then we can begin to change things. One perfect example from the book, and I spoke about it earlier, is my grandfather and his family worked on a tenant farm. And it was 60-40 was the split that they had to give. 60% went to the owners, 40% went to my family. And out of that 40%, they had to pay for all the feed, the supplies, everything to farm the land. And at the end of every year, no matter how well the crop was, the person who owned the tenant farm would say, you just broke even. Now, what did that actually mean? That means that there was a family that got that received generational wealth at the expense of my family who labored. And that, that isn't generations ago, this is my grandparents, which has an impact on what my mom becomes. And one of the things that they say, and this is the part I talk about segregation, the biggest predictor of whether or not you go into college and your journey to the middle class is what happens to your parents. But what happens then when it was legally impossible for my grandparents to actually get an education? That my own mother went to segregated schools. In other words, the economic impact of racism in America is not somewhere far off in the past. It is living. I'm flying on Friday to go to see my grandfather because it'll be his birthday, his 85th birthday. We're going, I'm going to see him then. And so this isn't some long ago time. It's reality that still lives with us to this day. And so I think we begin to understand that. Um, we can begin to understand some of the long tail of racism. Here's another interesting thing. The plantation, where my family comes from, we've been back there. My mother managed, she's an amazing one. My mother manages to go and buy the graveyard for $500 where the slaves who my ancestors were buried. We own that plot of land. It's all that we own from our families, where my family worked. But the house, the slave house, the manor still existed. And it existed in the family of my ancestors' owners until the 1950s. And then they sold it to another family. And that family still owns it to this day. So in other words, you go back to owners. You're back with the people who own my ancestors. And the land is still there. And so what I want to say is that if you can go back, we can go back and visit. We can go and look at the bone plantation. And so what I want to say is that the reality of racism and slavery and its impact isn't in the past. It's living and walking amongst us every day. It's the reason why in Florida and places, they don't want to learn this history. Because if you learn the history, the natural question is, what do we do? It's amazing that all over the country, one of the main things they're litigating still, teaching American history and slavery. 
Tonight, growing backlash against Governor Ron DeSantis and the Florida Board of Education over the state's new standards for teaching the history of U.S. slavery. These are the most robust standards in African-American history, probably anywhere in the country. The new guidelines require middle school students be taught, quote, how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. An idea Vice President Kamala Harris in Florida Friday lambasted. How is it? that anyone could suggest that in the midst of these atrocities that there was any benefit to being subjected to this level of dehumanization. And so that's the reason why I want to say it may seem to be simplistic is that we have to be able to tell a true story. And until we can tell the true story, we don't know what to do with our past. And that's one of the things that I think is keeping us stuck as a country. I want to ask you about the day the news broke about the brutal police beating of Rodney King, which is a core memory for me and has imprinted a lot of a lot of things into my being. Your mother called you to the couch and she gave you a talk. Can you tell us about that talk? It was the first of many. When I came home from school that day, my mom had this serious look on her face. And my mom's kind of a lighthearted person, but every now and then she takes on a professional tone, almost like she she doesn't talk to us like this. She would often talk to us as like when white people came to visit, she'd have kind of this particular way of speaking. But she sat me down on the couch and she started going through this list of things that you had to do. And I'm 12 years old. Well, no matter what the police tell you, you must obey them. You always use yes, sir. No, sir. You don't raise your voice. You don't make any sudden movement. She gave me these instructions about how I was supposed to survive in a world that didn't trust this black skin to move up and down the highways and the byways. And every time something would happen, it would recur with increased frequency. One of the sad things about this is that I have a 15-year-old now. It was a couple of years ago. He's like around the same age as I was when Rodney King happened, when the George Floyd and all of these other things happened during the summer of 2020. And I found myself thinking the same kinds of things. What do I tell my sons and my daughters to help them survive as Black children in America? Because you have this thing when you have Black children. There's a period of their life when they're cute. And everybody wants to feel progressive by saying you have cute and wonderful kids, especially the young Black boys. But there is this moment where society ceases to see young Black children as cute. They begin to see them as dangerous. And when they begin to see them as dangerous, you have to then begin to explain to them the nature of the danger. And one of the hard things for me is that my son, my oldest son, has a very clear understanding of fairness. And he really struggles with things not being the same. And I have to explain to him, son, the world isn't always fair. Even when he goes out with his friends now, I say, listen, son, if you and your friends get this idea to do something that is stupid out in the neighborhood, what your white friends can do and what you can do are not the same. Because if the police come, who knows how they're going to respond to you doing this thing? So you have this heightened responsibility. Unfortunately, even though I live, this is 20 years later, 30 years later now, apparent from what I heard as a child, I'm giving my son some of that same advice.
as we near the end of this interview, sadly, because I feel like I want to continue this conversation. You're incredible. I want to just return to the introduction of How Far to the Promised Land, where you write that you tell your children that your family are people born of trauma and miracle. Can you just dig into that for us? One of the hard things about talking about the Black experience in America, or even the experience of a particular Black family, is that it's easy to talk about trauma. The difficult things that we experienced as we have traversed through our family history, you've heard about some of those hard things that we have encountered. But there's also joy. And on Thanksgiving, I don't think there is a table of food that is better than the dessert table at my grandmother's house on Thanksgiving. There's red velvet cake, there's lemon meringue pie, there's German chocolate cake, there's pumpkin pie, there's sweet potato pie, there's apple pie. There's a table of all desserts and there's a table of all kinds of meats. And, and so and no matter who you are, no matter what you've done during the course of the year, you could have been a doctor or a lawyer, you could have been a drug dealer, your marriage could be falling apart, whatever it is, no matter who you are, you were invited to that table. And there is a sense in which there is a deep sense of love and acceptance that was in my community. One of the things that I said about that same high school that people like to stereotype is that I've never seen that much concentrated Black talent and giftedness, music, art, hip hop, all of the things that we could do in that community, in the midst of difficult things, was one of the things that happens is that when people stereotype you from the outside, on the inside, you begin to resist that lie. And so what I wanted my kids to be able to see in How Far to the Promised Land, because this is really their story, my story that I'm giving to them, is to see both the joy and the difficulty of Black life in America. And that you can't tell the joy without the difficulties, but you can't tell the difficulties and leave out the joy. And so what I wanted my children and the reader to see is that complexity. And this is probably the important part about that. It's just because there's joy in those communities, it doesn't make the things that people did to us okay. The joy is a defiant joy. And my goal is to make that joy a little bit less defiant. And there's a little bit more room for an untroubled happiness. It isn't a brief respite before a return to a world that doesn't always love us well. What gives you hope? One of the things that happens when you go through difficult things, you sometimes live those stories over and over again. And you think to yourself, man, I wish that I said this better. I wish that I had done this better. And part of the thing that was happening to me is just the stories that made up how far to the promised land were like sticking to me and they wouldn't let me go. And I felt like it was important for me to have a sense of an ending to write not a false ending, but a true ending to these stories and to give these stories to the world. And by giving these stories to the world, hopefully these stories would change the world in the same way that they changed me. These people that you encounter in this story made me who I am. And so my hope is that the work that I do somehow makes this world a little bit less difficult for my children. And I guess the thing that keeps me going when I'm discouraged about that is that just like my grandmother said, and just like my mom said, I think that I concluded this too, that in the midst of all of this great stuff that we see, that there is a God who's at work in it, working towards creating a more just society. And I'm just blessed to be able to participate in that work 
through writing. Esau, you give me hope. So much hope. Thank you for all you do, and thank you for being a part of the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I'll come back anytime. My senior year of high school, I was told by my college counselor that college was a no-go. With a 1.87 GPA, I probably couldn't even walk the stage. This 1.87 GPA was a culmination of four years of no guidance, no direction, no leadership. And it was also four years of an institution that said it had my best interests, but completely let me slip through the cracks. <laughs> 10 years later, I'm kind of flexing on it. <laughs> a recent professor of Africana studies, um, contributor, writer to Huffington Post, Black Voices, heck, I even got to meet the President of the United States this very week. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. But yet and still, I found out something, that I am an exception to a very dangerous rule. A rule that allows at least one of me and a thousand black men who will never see the opportunity to speak to you all. The stories we tell ourselves about the other, about people who are either in reality or in our mythology not like us, have real and lasting impacts in the world. The lies we've told ourselves in the United States about Black people especially have allowed us to control access to the public discourse, to other Black people and communities, and to build and sustain power structures which exclude them. We create a self-perpetuating cycle relying on outliers to tell the stories of the whole and therefore largely ignore the needs or even the existence of vast majority of people. We need to not only disrupt the cycle, but to fundamentally reshape our society, reimagine and rebuild the structures of power in such a way that the aspirations of Americanism can be fully realized. We have to stop telling ourselves lies that perpetuate injustice. It's far past time for a new national story. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.